Got a couple things that we haven't mentioned in a long time since David mentioned the website. I thought this would be a perfect time to remind you of a couple things. One um, is, it might be on the screen here behind me. If you haven't done this yet, we really need you to. Uh, We have a church app. Um, It's called Church Center. It's called Church Center. That's the logo you're looking for in your Google Play or your App Store. Would you please, if you haven't done that, do it right now. Download that app for us and search for us. You can do it by location and it'll find you because we're the only church in this area that's on there. Um, But you can type in Berea Christian Church as well and it will find us. Um, Just make sure you don't choose the Berean Christian Church that's in Kentucky or the other Berea Christian Church that exists in Georgia outside of Atlanta. Um, Don't choose those because that's not us. All right. Um, But here's the reason why. Uh, Make sure you enable notifications. This is the fastest way for us to communicate with you. So if there is ever a weather thing or something like that going on or some special need, this is the fastest way because a notification will pop right onto your screen. You won't have to check Facebook. You won't have to get an email. It'll literally just pop on your screen. Um, It also is a directory. We have an online directory that you can choose to be a part of. You don't have to. Totally up to you. But if you want to, and it's super handy then to look up folks and and be able to email them or call them um, from that app. And so if you will download that app and let us know, just put on the connect card, hey, I would love to be part of the directory. We have to invite you so not just anyone can join. And then you select what information you want people to see. Um, So it's not just all open, it's whatever you allow people to see, okay? So please, if you haven't done that, do that. Um, I think David said we had 90-some folks that get those push notifications when we send them out, but uh, we want everybody uh, to be a part of that. The second one, um, because it is the holiday season, I haven't mentioned this in so long, but it's so helpful. A couple years ago, um, as soon as we got uh, approved as a non-for-profit, we were able to join Kroger Community Rewards. I'm sure none of you shop at Kroger, but if you do, then if you select us as your rewards of member, if you will, you select us, every time you shop at Kroger, a teeny itty bitty little bit of what you spend there uh, comes back to the church here. Um, And you do nothing. You don't have to select anything or do anything else. Uh, Just so you know, uh, we've got three quarterly checks. I think we have like 24 families or something like that, a part of it right now. Anybody can join. Don't have to live here. Could live anywhere. Um, And we use that money this year to help pay for food on our staff retreat. Um, so we didn't have to take all that money out of the budget. We used that extra money that we uh, came, came in to, to buy food um, to feed your staff um, at the staff retreat this last year. And so it's super simple. If you have the Kroger app up in the top right-hand corner, there's a little drop down, and that is where you go to find that. And then the next thing you select is rewards. And when you select rewards, there's a thing called community rewards. And you just search for us in there, and voila, you'll find us. Just check that box. And then how you'll know you signed up is you'll get a receipt at Kroger, and at the bottom of that receipt, it will say Berea Christian Church at the bottom. So it's kind of cool um, to see our name on the bottom of that. And uh, I know several of you have signed up, and thank you for that. I actually looked, and I think our last quarter, I think we contributed like $4 from all of our shopping at Kroger. So it's a, it's a tiny little amount, but it adds up when you multiply that by lots of folks. And so thank you in advance for participating in that way. If you have any questions or confused about how to do that, see me or David or Megan or even Ken on the way out, um, and we can help get that... Get that uh, Yes, yes. He can help too. Um, we can get that all set up for you, all right? Because uh, it's, it's important. It's a neat thing. It's a neat opportunity that we have. Let's take full and total advantage of it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father God, as we are here to celebrate, Father, we are here to celebrate you, what you've done for us, the gift of your son. Father, we have so much to be thankful for as we enter into this season and I pray that this, these outrageous things that we're talking about each week, Father, inspire us to become more like you. 
Inspire us into the ways, the lifestyle of your son, and inspire us to reach out to the world around us, a world that is in such desperate need of the saving grace of your son. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That really, really, really plays into where we're at this morning. Really, really, really does. Last week, we, we talked about sin, outrageous sin. Sin is offensive to God and should be, as a result, offensive to us. I said it this way, if it was sin, it is sin, it will always be sin as defined by God alone. We humans don't have the ability to change those definitions, and our God, thankfully, does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, his view of sin has not and will not change either. We're reminded of those six, that short list of six things, sin's ways that, that sin affects us in our relationship with God. That first one was that sin greatly offends God. Sometimes we forget that our sin does that. Beyond that, it, it causes us to earn a death sentence. Yes, our sin gives us the sentence of death. By sinning, we grieve the Holy Spirit. God's very dwelling in us is so offended, repulsed by our sin that he's trying desperately to save us from, to cleanse us from. When we sin, we suspend the exercise of faith. You can't be worshiping God and sinning at the same time. We severely wound our own conscience. We become desensitized to sin when we sin. And sometimes we can even lose the awareness of God's grace within our own lives for a period of time when we sin, causing us to run from God, to think that God doesn't care about us, to think that God doesn't want anything to do with us, to think that God can't forgive us. But you see, sin is not the end. Sin does not have to keep us from God, nor should it. There's a verse I shared with you last week, but I only shared the first half. It's a famous verse, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And then there's a comma, and the word but, which they always found funny in junior high. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That verse goes together. You see, there's more to the story. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person some might possibly dare to die. But God... But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's bring it into the present tense. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Our sin condemns us to a certain fate apart from God, a fate that we alone choose for ourselves. But it's a fate that ultimately can be completely overcome one and only one way, through the power of the blood of the Lamb of God and the sacrifice that Jesus made. And that leads us to our outrageous topic of today. You could not talk about outrageous sin last week without following it immediately by outrageous forgiveness. You could also say outrageous grace. You could also say outrageous mercy, but we're just going to primarily use the word forgiveness today. 
I want you to remember the definition we talked about in week one of the word outrageous. Exceeding the limits of what is, uh, is usual, not conventional, going beyond the standards. Now, typically in our world, the word outrageous is often used in a negative way because it's describing a negative behavior of some kind. But ultimately, the reality is outrageous can actually be something fantastic, amazing, outstanding, like in this case. The reason that the forgiveness of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus is so outrageous to us is because it's so undeserved, completely and totally undeserved. We talked about the reality that we all have earned punishment. We deserve what we have coming to us. I'll say it this way. No one will find themselves in hell one day and be surprised. We will all earn that potential destination. But it's the exact same can be said of heaven. You see, the reality is in heaven, there won't be a single soul in heaven that actually deserves to be there. It is only by the outrageous gifts of forgiveness and grace and mercy that we are allowed into God's presence. This is a gift of God. We love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Make sure when you read that passage, anytime you open up the book of Ephesians, when you get to chapter 2, verse 8, don't read the verse that way. Please don't read the verse that way. Make it first person. For it is by grace I have been saved through faith. This is not from myself. It is a gift of God so that I cannot boast. Always remind that. Make it first person because it's for you. It's for you. Don't ever forget that. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. A few weeks ago, I shared what we were doing this week with the staff. And I said, hey, I got a question for you. I want your favorite. Give me your favorite outrageous example of forgiveness in Scripture. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take a very quick survey of your staff's answers to that very question so as we hear the accounts, I want you to think about this. Which one of these characters from the Bible do you most identify with? Which one of these examples, as given to you by the staff here at Berea Christian Church, do you find the most commonalities with and the way that God has forgiven you? When have you experienced God's outrageous forgiveness and grace and mercy in your life? Think of a time. Think of a moment. Maybe it's an ongoing thing, but Make it personal this morning. We'll start off with Ken. Ken chose the woman at the well, John chapter 4. You could turn there. We're not going to read the whole thing. It's a survey. It's a brief look at each of these stories. But John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Talk about an outrageous act of forgiveness. Probably in your Bibles or on your phone, there's a heading. And probably that heading tells you that this wasn't just a woman, that this was a Samaritan woman. And if you don't know, Samaritans hated and actually hate the Jews, and the Jews felt the exact same way about them. Long history of hatred, lots of reasons. The Samaritans had tried to prevent the walls of Jerusalem from being rebuilt in the days of Nehemiah. They had chosen to aid the enemies of Judah on several occasions. The Samaritans, by the Jews, were considered unclean, outcasts. They intermarried with pagans, messed up everything. They disagreed on major important Jewish religious issues. The list goes on and on and on, and they still don't like each other to this very day. So this story has so many outrageous elements to it, but it begins this way. Jesus, the narrative begins by Jesus stating, or by John stating, that Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee, and that he had to go through Samaria. That's the way John words it in chapter 4. 
When in fact, no, no, actually he didn't have to go that way. According to the customs of his day, he actually shouldn't have went that way. It was quicker to go through Samaria. It was a much more direct path, but most Jews purposely took the long way around to avoid the peoples all together. They did not want to be exposed to this unclean group of people. Jesus came to break down those very barriers, so that's why he had to go that way. There was a meeting that had to take place. Jesus came to an incredibly famous, historic Hebrew landmark, a place called Jacob's Well. Phenomenal place. Yes, the Jacob, the son of Isaac. Isaac, the son of Abraham. An incredible location. He sat down to rest while the disciples went on into town to grab some food for later on that day. And that's when the encounter occurred. A woman came to draw water from that well alone in the middle of the day. And she was a Samaritan. Now, every part of that description has something wrong with that. Why was this woman alone? Why didn't she come with the other ladies? Why did she come in the middle of the day instead of in the morning like everyone else when it was cooler. Why did Jesus even acknowledge her existence? Most Jews would have completely ignored her. Jesus didn't just acknowledge her, though. He actually talked with her and asked her for something, in this case, a drink. That was outrageous. She was unclean. She was an unclean woman. Asking her for a drink would have made Jesus unclean according to the rules of the day. And that's when the conversation begins. She looks at Jesus and she basically asks, Jesus, why on earth are you talking to me, one, You're not supposed to do that, are you? And two, how could you possibly ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman, you're a Jewish man. That's not allowed in our cultures. And that's when Jesus replies, if you only knew who I was, you would have actually asked me for a drink of living water. Now the woman's standing there just scratching her head, looking at Jesus like, what are you talking about? You ain't got nothing to get water out of this well with. How can I ask you for a drink? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But she inquires further, where can I get this living water? What does he mean by that? She asks the question, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well to drink from? He drank from it himself. So did his sons and his livestock. And you're trying to tell me that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob? I can just imagine Jesus' look on his face as she's asking him that. Like, well... Yeah, yeah, kind of, you know, maybe a little, just a little. Jesus continues, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now she's really interested. Okay, where can I get this? Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. Wait. And have to keep coming here to draw water. She's being very literal. She didn't get it yet. She's either looking for a way to get out of some form of work to make her life easier. Or she's trying to escape coming to this well every day risking the public shame that she inquires. So maybe she incurs. So maybe she's, she's looking for a new place to go to avoid all the other people. And so it's at that moment that Jesus says, okay, I can see you're not tracking with me. I'm going to change the subject just a little. And so he says, hey, okay, I see you're interested in this living water, so here's what I need you to do. I just need you to run home, grab your husband, bring him back. I'll tell you all about it. Dramatic pause. Lots of silence. And then the woman finally responds to Jesus and says, uh, probably very much staring at the floor, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have a husband. Huh? Sorry, you, you, don't, you don't have a husband? Oh, that's right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. 
And the guy you're with right now, yeah, that's not really your husband, is it? Imagine once again the look on her face as she shamefully admits that she doesn't have a husband, but then this complete Jewish stranger tells her her entire past. Now, as a person who thought everyone knew every bad detail about your life, to have that happen kind of confirms that, doesn't it? I always thought everyone knew all my laundry, my dirty laundry. And this guy, this Jewish guy, how does he know? He's not even from here and he knows about me. What's going on? But she's curious. There's something else about this conversation. There's a thing about Jesus' presence that inquires her, makes her go farther. She actually says something very specific about Jesus in her description. She says, I can see you're a prophet. (laughs) Yes, he is. Yes, he is. She's right. But she stops there. And she's like, okay, enough about me. How about you? We've talked about my past. Let's see about you. How about you, you Jews and your religion? She tries to turn the tables on Jesus, but Jesus didn't take the bait. He actually told her some very specific information. He told her that there would soon be an event take place, and that would be his death. And his death would tear down all of the barriers between not just the Jews and the Samaritans, but between the Jews, Samaritans, and the Gentile world as a whole. And where you worship will no longer matter. It will all be about who and how you worship. Verse 23 Yet a time is coming and has now come when, a true, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, oh, you're talking about the Messiah. Well, I've heard of the Messiah. He's coming. And when he comes, he'll be able to explain everything. Again, Jesus is looking at her going, <laughs> You know, you might be right. He might be able to do that. And just imagine his face as he kind of probably, I picture him smile. It's just a little half smile like, well, you see, uh, yeah, me, the guy speaking to you right now, um, yeah, I'm the Messiah. What happened in that moment? What happened in that moment? Outrageous conversation should have never taken place with an incredible outcome. I have to think there was probably some more dialogue somewhere. It's just not all recorded for us because this woman's life was fully just exposed. But what does she do? She goes running into town where everybody already knows everything about her and she brings all of the people that she tries to avoid the entire day, every single day of her life and she grabs them and she brings them out to hear about this Jesus. There's only one thing that could explain that transformation. That woman was just freed. She was just released. She was forgiven. She was redeemed. She was restored. And she was given a new life, a new hope in this Messiah who she just happened to meet going to get water at the well. She has been forgiven completely. She's not afraid to face that town of people who look down on her every single day because of her past, because she just experienced the outrageous forgiveness of Jesus firsthand. But here's what's really awesome. She didn't keep that forgiveness to herself, did she? Once she realized and began to receive that, she went back and told everybody else. So should we. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came out, they urged Jesus to stay with them. And he stayed two more days because his word, because all, and because of his words, Many more 
became believers. Yes, the forgiveness that God offers you today can help lead other people to him tomorrow. It's an incredible transformation, but we have to be willing to share the forgiveness we've received with others that we know. The second story was Megan's. I picked it because it fits next in the line of of Scripture. Just turn a couple pages to John chapter 8. It's a very short exchange this time in another case with another female. In this story, the Pharisees have now tried to trap Jesus. If, if you were with us through the study of Luke, we saw time and time again as Jesus tried, they try to trap Jesus. They try to ask him trick questions. It always blows up in their face, but they don't ever quit. They try to do so this time by making an example of a young woman caught in the act of adultery. Now, there are so many things wrong with this story, and there are so many people in this story guilty of sin themselves. Verse 2, chapter 8. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question, of course, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Yes, this woman was caught in adultery, an outrageous sin. Now, they say she was caught in the act. Now, I don't know everything. I don't pretend to know everything in this world. I don't want to know everything in this world. I'll be very honest. But I just have a question. I think it would be really hard for a woman to be caught in the act of adultery by herself. I I don't know how that would work. Maybe in our culture we figured it out. But I'm just telling you, I don't think it's possible. There would have had to have been another party involved with this conversation. Where's that man at? If she was caught in the act, he was there. Shouldn't they have brought him before Jesus? Leviticus chapter 20 tells us they should have because both of them should have been stoned to death, not just the woman. Obviously, the accusers had zero interest in the true interpretation of the law or else he would have been standing beside her. So it says Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. We talked about this in the book of Luke and John. Jesus never does that anywhere. He's never seen written anything. There's no written documents of Jesus on planet earth. We wrote, he wrote something. We don't even know what it was. We don't know why he wrote it. Maybe it was something really important. Maybe it was just a distraction. So people would take their eyes off of the woman. The scene takes place in the morning, it says. It says she was caught in the act of adultery. Maybe literally this had just happened and they drug her out into the streets, in which case she might not have even been fully clothed standing before this group of men who were there to condemn her. Can you imagine the embarrassment and shame that would have gone along with the guilt that she was already experiencing? And now she stands alone, condemned by all of those Watching, verse 7, when they kept on questioning Jesus, he straightened up and said to them very simply, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he sat back down and started writing on the ground. Now, that wasn't the right answer, you see. That's not what Jesus was supposed to say. He was supposed to say, you're right, that's, that's the law of Moses. Go ahead, execute. But instead, he flipped the script. Now, Please remember this because a lot of people take this passage out of context. context. Well, you can't judge me. You can't say anything to me because of the sin in my life. Jesus did not free this woman from her sin in that moment. 
Not at all. She's guilty of sin. He knows that. She knows that. The crowd knows that. Everybody there knows that. The problem here is that everyone in the crowd, except Jesus, is also guilty of a long list of sins, including dragging this woman out into the public sphere to judge her in such a way. And Jesus simply reminds them, hey, uh, how about y'all? How's your, how's your life? How's your sin-filled life right now? How are you doing with that? If you can clean conscience, go ahead, throw a stone. You go right ahead. You're worthy of doing so. But if not, maybe you need to reconsider. At that, verse 9, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Again, I want you to imagine the looks on their faces as they came angry, mob, ready to attack, and all of a sudden, They're left to walk away. They thought they had Jesus backed into a corner. In their mind, this woman was convicted by their own law. There was no questions. It's true. The punishment they were seeking was accurate. Once again, though, we're familiar with this verse from the New Testament. For the wages of sin are death, Romans 6.23. Funny, funny how Romans 6.23 does not then go on to list a, a long list of sins that are deserve of death, does it? It just says the wages of sin. What sin? Any sin. All sin. No exception to the sin and its punishment that's due. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up, asked the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She said, well, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go, go now and leave your life of sin. In that moment, Jesus offers her this outrageous forgiveness. She did not deserve it, nor do we. She deserved the punishment they were seeking so does the man that she was with. Instead, Jesus offered this broken, humiliated wreck of a woman just a taste, just a taste of his grace and his mercy. In that moment, she was set free literally from execution and more permanently through forgiveness. But she was left with a choice, wasn't she? Do you want to remain in my grace? Do you want to remain in my mercy? Do you want to keep experiencing this kind of freedom if your life? Do you want to remain guilt-free? If so, if so, then go and leave your life of sin. Or some translations say, go and sin no more. That's all Jesus asked of her. How about our lives? What have we done in our life? What sin are we guilty of that you don't think God can forgive you for? You see, here's the thing with this woman. Did she come to Jesus for forgiveness? No. She was drugged to Jesus to be condemned. That's backwards. She was forcibly brought to Jesus, and yet what did he offer her anyway? Forgiveness. It was immediately made available to her. So there's got to be a limit though, right? There's got to be a limit to God's grace, to God's outrageous forgiveness. What if someone barely even knows Jesus? What if someone's really not had much of an encounter with Jesus? Will he, can he still forgive them? That is a great question. And I think Amber, our administrative assistance example for you, her favorite will be the perfect choice for us to look at that. Luke chapter 23 is where you'll find this particular scene. This is simply Jesus was being nailed to the cross, but many of you might know he was not alone. There were two others beside him that were also being nailed to a cross. Both of those individuals had been convicted of serious crimes against Rome. The punishment they received was due for their crime, whatever it was. That was reserved for the worst forms of criminal to set an example to keep people from sinning against Rome, from inspiring to commit crimes against Rome. The punishment was reserved for the worst, the worst offenders. They were both guilty. They knew it. 
Jesus knew they were both guilty. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourselves and us. But it says the other criminal rebuked him. Hey, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same punishment, we're punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus famously responds in answering him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, some might say that's, that's too easy, that deathbed confession. That's just too easy. You know, I, I would like to put you in the, uh, the scene. Imagine you being nailed to the cross. Imagine the pain, the suffering, the anguish, the absolute judgment that person is under in that moment. There's no way out. They will be dead in just a few hours. That man believes that he committed these crimes. He believes this is a crime worthy of the punishment he's receiving. He alone knows what he's done. The criminal knows just enough about Jesus to know that Jesus didn't do anything wrong, that Jesus didn't deserve to be on the cross like he did. Now, Luke doesn't record specifically that this man asked Jesus for forgiveness, but think of what the man's already done. He's acknowledged his guilt. He's acknowledged the justice of his sentence, his punishment. He fears God clearly He knows the innocence of Jesus, and he knows the power and the authority that Jesus has. And so his desire then to be a part of Jesus' future is his request for forgiveness. And it says very clearly that he was forgiven. Jesus, he absolutely confirms it. Now that's some outrageous forgiveness. It seems impossible that that could even happen because what is impossible with man, well, of course, is, is possible with God, all things are possible, Matthew 19, 26. Now, there's two more people that the staff wanted to bring up. And the first one, um, David thought best represented this outrageous forgiveness, and it was a guy named Paul, who at the time when he was forgiven, I suppose, would have been named Saul, but that's another story. I, that's a really good one. That's a really good one because Paul was a man trained in the Jewish faith. He was a man of zealous pursuit of God. He thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. He was bent on ending this Jesus movement before it could really even get started. He played a role in the execution of the very first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. And now he'd gotten papers and permission to go to the city of Damascus to seek out, hunt up, circle up, round up all the Christians in that region. When on his way, he was stopped dead in his tracks. Jesus himself, after his ascension, comes and speaks directly to Paul, confronts him face to face. Was Paul looking for Jesus on the road to Damascus? (laughs) No, (laughs) definitely not. He was not seeking forgiveness in any way. But God's radical grace saw him, sought him out instead. He was blinded, literally, physically blinded, and confronted with the reality of what he was doing, that this pursuit of Christians was actually an attack on his God, that this Jesus that he was trying to keep people from actually was the long-awaited Messiah that he had been praying for his entire existence. God confronted him in the middle of the evil, in the middle of the sin that he was living in, but God did not destroy Saul. He did not give him a punishment for that. Instead, he gave him a new identity and changed his name to Saul a bit later. Listen to Paul's explanation of what God had done. You find it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. 
Paul says these words, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy to appoint me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, I was once a persecutor, I was once a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. That is outrageous forgiveness for a man that didn't deserve it for sure. He was persecuting Jesus firsthand. This forgiveness and this grace led to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout basically all of the Gentile world. It's the reason you and I are probably sitting here today is because of the outrageous forgiveness that Paul received from God. But God took it to another level with Paul. He didn't just meet with Paul. He needed one more step because he had to show Paul what this really looked like firsthand in real life, real person. It wasn't just meeting with God. He put flesh on it. He shows something else about forgiveness in Paul's conversion. He showed Paul a measure of grace that Paul didn't even think was possible because God sent a man, a Christian man named Ananias to Paul. And that Christian man showed Paul the forgiveness, the grace, and the mercy and acceptance of Jesus, first person in human form. It wasn't enough for God to just do that. God sent a man. Why? Well, see, Ananias wasn't excited, would you? Would you have been excited to go meet with the man that was coming to put you in jail? No, you would hide for that man, and Ananias wanted to do that. It took some convincing, but Jesus eventually convinced Ananias to do that. And what did Ananias do? He went to Paul, right there on Straight Street, found Paul, laid his hands upon Paul, prayed with Paul, healed Paul, and brought Paul into the fellowship of believers. The very people Paul was coming to destroy, he said, come on in. You're welcome, brother. <laughs> that put forgiveness first, first person. Paul, this is what you must do as you go out and share my word with people. You can't just tell them. No, no, no. You got to show them firsthand. You got to show them. Have you ever thought about that reality in your life? That Jesus might use you just like he did Ananias to physically express his forgiveness to someone else in this world. To physically express his grace, his mercy to someone else. How about someone that's hurt you? And in Ananias' case, it was just hypothetical. Paul was coming to hurt him, hadn't done it yet, but he knew he'd hurt other people. He had to physically show that grace, that forgiveness to Paul. Who is it you need to show that physical forgiveness, mercy, grace to right now? Right now. You might ask the question, well, I don't really have anybody or I don't really want to. Okay, here's the problem with that. This is required of us. This might be one of Jesus' hardest teachings, one of the most outrageous things that our Savior ever said to us when he tells us how to walk with him. It comes from Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, but, if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Ouch. See, it's not optional, <laughs> So who do we need to forgive today? Because it's a sin not to forgive. 
Today is the day that you can be redeemed from that sin in your life. You can be forgiven and you can forgive others. You can be free of that burden because it is a burden to carry on those things in your life. You're holding wrong against someone. God just might have a plan to use you and your willingness to forgive that person as the change agent that inspires life in that person you need to forgive. I know that's a tough one, but this is the time of year where we consider such things, and I would encourage you to follow up on God's word, not mine. <laughs> to closing, the last one, I, I saved mine for last because yeah. this one maybe is the biggest example, though, maybe the most unbelievable example. I would share with you the book chapter verse, but I can't because it's the first two-thirds of your Bible. It's called the Old Testament. Um, it's devoted to telling the story of this people group. This was a people blessed by God, handpicked by him to be his people, chosen to receive special favor from the beginning of recorded history. A people group that is given the honor of carrying God's laws and his ways to all of humanity. A people given the responsibility for putting his teachings on display for the whole world to see. A people who witnessed firsthand miracle after miracle. They received deliverance time and time again from the hands of their enemies. But this is also a people who turned their back on God generation after generation. A people who abandoned God for foreign idols. A people who abandoned his teachings, his guidance. A people who rejected his wisdom time after time. They were given the law. They rebelled against it. Then they completely ignored it. They chose to replace their God with an earthly king many of whom ultimately led them further away from God. God would send prophets, some they would listen to, some they killed. God had them taken captive, sent into exile, and then still allowed them to be free and brought back. His forgiveness reigns as he sends those people back to the promised land to rebuild that temple and gather once again as his people it seems to be this endless cycle of rebellion, forgiveness, restoration, and then back on that path to rebellion once again. Yet what's God do? God's patient with them. He ultimately rewarded them with his long ago promised line that led to his son Jesus coming into this world to redeem not only the Jews, but anyone Anyone who was willing to declare with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, they too will be saved. God's outrageous forgiveness is available to anyone, any nation, any person. If someone comes to humble themselves and call upon his name, repent and be baptized, the outrageous forgiveness of God is theirs. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Have you accepted that outrageous forgiveness in your life yet? Have you fully accepted? Have you partially accepted it? Are you still holding on to some of those things in your life and not allowed God to free you from them yet? Are you still hiding from God? Is there still shame or guilt in your life that you've not confessed to him to let him take it away? If so, today is the day to put that in your past and experience the outrageous forgiveness that he alone can offer us. On the flip side, maybe you have embraced that forgiveness for yourself. That's awesome. Have you been that Samaritan woman? 
and embrace that forgiveness to yourself and then went running back into town to tell everybody else about this man who knew everything about you and how he forgave you. Or part three, have you claimed that forgiveness for yourself, but you have been holding tight onto that grudge? You and I both know families who don't talk to each other for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years because they're holding on to something. Their response doesn't matter. What they re- how they receive your forgiveness does not matter, not in the least. You must pray for God to soften their heart, but there's no control there. All you can do is forgive them. And if you've offended someone, ask them for your, for, 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 to forgive you. That's all you can do. And then the burden is off of you. You have experienced that outrageous forgiveness in your life. You're now offering that outrageous forgiveness to someone else. Do it today. It will change your life. I promise you it will change your life. It'll probably improve your health even. It'll lower your blood pressure. It'll reduce your cholesterol. I'm not making these things up. God put this thing together. And when we follow his rules, this thing works real well. When we don't, it fails us. Consider that as we move into this holiday season, it is the time, it's always the time to forgive. Father God, your outrageous forgiveness, it's, it's incredible. If we ever pause long enough in our busy world to really just sit and think quietly, I know we got a bunch of hunters in the room. I wonder if when they've been sitting out in their deer stands here over the last couple of weeks, if they've just thought for a moment about your forgiveness. They've seen the beauty of your creation. They've they've enjoyed being out in in the world, but have they thought and made it personal and thought about how thankful they are for what you've offered them? And as they've sat there alone, have they thought about maybe someone else, a grudge they have, an enemy they've made, a wrong they've they've committed and they've not offered up to you? Have they considered those things? If they have, then I pray today is the day to repent, to ask for forgiveness. Offer forgiveness, Father, to those that have offended us. It's a difficult thing to do. It absolutely can be. But, Father, it is so freeing when we do. Father, your word, man, it challenges us. It challenges me every time I study it. I pray that your word, I know it will never return void. I pray that your spirit moves in this place and elicits a response to your word this morning. Father, we love you. And there's no way we could ever thank you enough for the outrageous forgiveness you've offered each and every one of us.